Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is a podcast based on international politics. Every week we choose a situation somewhere in the world, something politically interesting that is going on, and we break it down for you. There's no one better to break this stuff down because it'd be quite convoluted, all this international policy stuff, than this man, Dr. Keith Souter, a couple of PhDs on the issues of international politics. You know what? For someone who is a bit highbrow, Keith, you're actually really good at breaking it down and speaking in <laughs> layman's you. terms, which is very much appreciated. You've also been an Australian media commentator on international politics for many decades as well, and we've worked together in TV as well as podcasting for a couple of years. My name's Kate Mack. Let's get into this because it's quite an interesting one today. Nuclear disarmament. Now, don't anyone go to sleep because it's actually, like, it's fascinating. The world has been trying to keep this under uh, under control mm. with some nations while others are agitators. I mean, this, there have been no really good moves on nuclear disarmament. And this is this is big news this, this week. This is Kate. good news, absolutely. So the big news story this week for those who are concerned about international politics is the nuclear weapons ban treaty now enters into force. So it's actually by UN standards a very short treaty. I'm reading an excellent report here published by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons called ICANN. It's called Choosing Humanity and it's a booklet aimed at arguing that Australia must sign up to this treaty. So if people want to get their heads around the treaty issue, this is an ideal way to start. So essentially... Nuclear weapons changed the nature of warfare in 1945. It meant that instead of a general complaining that he or she lacked sufficient military forces to beat the other side, suddenly you could wipe out an entire city with one weapon. And so people then had to start thinking again about, well, how do we conduct warfare? And so you get this new strand of strategic studies that comes along, which is based on the idea not so much of fighting a nuclear war, but of deterring a nuclear war. So then we get this theory of nuclear deterrence. And we have, since 1945, lived under this cloud of the risk of World War Three. Now, there have been periods when situations got very intense, other times when things have slowed down. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in the United States actually produces a clock which shows how close we are to nuclear annihilation. So the the arms of the clock move back and forth. So what we're dealing with now is a, a new era in which nuclear weapons exist, in which nuclear weapons can destroy all the life on the surface of this earth. There'll still be some forms of life left under the sea, ready to reinvent um, life on earth but it's going to take millions of years for that cycle to begin again. So it'd be much more sensible to get rid of the <laughs> nuclear weapons. So they've been around for 75 years. One of the, the proposals that was made many years ago was simply let's try to stop the spread of nuclear weapons. So that's called nuclear proliferation. The Americans always like to use a long word when a short word will do it. basically means spread. And Leonard Beaton, who uh, I knew in the, the 1960s, Leonard Beaton wrote a book called Must the Bomb Spread, in which he argued that we need to reduce the risk of the bomb spreading amongst other countries. So when I look back on the talks that I used to give in the 1960s, that's almost 60 years ago now, it's interesting how we were speculating that by the year 2000, 
we would have at least 30 nuclear weapon states in the world, and that would include Australia, Canada and Sweden. They were all developing a nuclear energy for civilian purposes, which could be switched across to military purposes. So we get a a breakthrough in the 1970s with um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which stops the spread of nuclear weapons. Now, the idea in that treaty was to say to countries that have not acquired nuclear weapons, don't acquire them, and those that already have them, you have to work towards general and complete disarmament. So that was the deal that was worked out in the early 70s. I was at the first review conference of the treaty in 1975 in Geneva, and it was quite clear that countries like Australia and Canada, etc., were honouring their side of the obligation. They had decided not to acquire nuclear weapons. But the uh, big nuclear weapon states continued to violate their part of the agreement by continuing to expand their nuclear weapons. So we've, we've managed to stop a bit the uh, what's called the horizontal spread of nuclear weapons. In other words, the weapons going to more and more countries. So we, we have a much smaller number of countries with nuclear weapons today than some of us were predicting back in the 1960s, 1970s. Obviously, we think of countries like India, Pakistan, Israel, North Korea, but not the countries that you might have suspected, which would be Australia, Canada, Scandinavia. None of them went down that nuclear path. And because Australia has agreed not to acquire nuclear weapons, it means that Indonesia doesn't feel obliged to acquire nuclear weapons. And because Indonesia isn't acquiring nuclear weapons, so, say, Malaysia or Singapore aren't acquiring them either. So in that way, we're we're managing to make some progress with stopping the spread of nuclear weapons. But the real issue is not just stopping the spread, it's actually banning the things entirely. And so a group of Australians uh, began campaigning over a decade ago now for a ban on all nuclear weapons. It's a very broadly based organisation. For example, the Red Cross movement became involved. The Red Cross, who had been present at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, naturally, because they were dealing with the casualties of war and Japan was still at war at that time. Red Cross said, look, don't count on us if you have a nuclear war. We simply will not have the facilities to cope with a major use of nuclear weapons. So you get a variety of organisations. You've got faith-based organisations, environmental organisations. It's been a really remarkable coalition. And and I might just say the... um, a Nobel Committee, which often gets criticised for uh, the people to whom it awards the Nobel Peace Prize, but the Nobel Committee awarded ICANN, this Australian-based organisation, with uh, the Nobel Peace Treaty back in 2017. Now, work has continued on producing a nuclear treaty, which will simply say for those countries that agree to it, we will not acquire nuclear weapons, nor will we have them stationed on our territory. And we won't be involved in their creation, etc. And that treaty, this second treaty, the treaty banning nuclear weapons, that treaty has now received sufficient ratifications. In other words, sufficient countries agreeing to sign on that, in fact, it will now enter into force in three months' time. This week is very historic because it means that the countries that have signed it have agreed never under any circumstances to develop, test, produce, manufacture, otherwise acquire, possess or stockpile nuclear weapons or other nuclear explosive devices. It's a very short treaty, 
but it's a very, very important one. The problem is that the, the countries that have the nuclear weapons are not very keen on it. They've, they've all been opposed to it or abstaining from it. Uh, and tragically, Australia is one of those countries that sided with the United States. So the countries that have don't like the idea are the US, Russia, China, Britain and France. <laughs> America's NATO allies have also joined in. Now, the dilemma for America's allies is what's called the doctrine of extended nuclear deterrence. In other words, okay, Australia doesn't have nuclear weapons, but we are nonetheless, or theoretically, protected by the Americans who have their nuclear weapons. Mm. So that's what's called extended nuclear deterrence. So with the treaty about to enter into force, it's received the basic 50. There are about 200 countries in the UN. A quarter of them have now accepted it. The treaty enters into force um, in three months' time. When that happens, um, or even before hopefully it happens, there's going to be a campaign or a renewed campaign for Australia to sign on to it. So that that's where we are at the moment. It's good news. We don't normally deal with good news in this program, yeah. <laughs> but this is good news. And it's an Australian organisation that started the ball rolling on all of this back in 2007. So just being, being clear, though, because we do know that there are a handful of countries that have nuclear weapons and you have named some of them. So we've got India and Pakistan. You've got China. Does China have them? China, of course. Yeah. Um, of course. Russia, yeah. America. England. England France. and France. So you've got right? five nuclear weapon states, mm-hmm. right? And then on top of that, you've got other countries that have found ways of acquiring them. So India and Pakistan, which is a very dangerous situation. The capital cities of those two countries are actually very close to each other. So a conventional war between those two countries would rapidly spill over into a nuclear exchange of some sort. Obviously, North Korea, which Mm. is what the fuss has been about. Israel has them, but will not admit to having them. So, that yes, there are other countries. Now, Libya at one point was acquiring them Mm. and then changed its mind. South Africa was also thinking about acquiring them and may actually have tested one. We still don't know for sure what happened 40 years ago off the coast of South Africa. Uh, But South Africa has also renounced nuclear weapons as well. So when you've got these countries, Keith, that, you know, as you just said, that's a really good example, that India-Pakistan example, because there's emotions there. And whenever there's emotional sort of um, tensions, they'll there's more likely to be a trigger pulled. So how do you, even when you've got the beginnings of something really great like this new agreement, how do you even get these countries to pull back in the first instance? How well, do you- that's, that's, that's obviously what the campaign has got to be about and you've got to work with peace groups, what also civil society organisations, that's the new term now, uh, working with these organisations to just to try to change public opinion and also for people to realise that, in fact, having nuclear weapons is really not that useful. As I've said... When, when you've got a nuclear weapon, it is so big it's unusable. Henry Kissinger, who's on record as opposing nuclear weapons, or at least their use in a first-use sense, Henry Kissinger has said, you, you just can't use them. Under what circumstances would you use a nuclear weapon? It, it's just too big. It's too mm. cumbersome. Mm. It's, it's a bit like using a shotgun to kill a flea. This because is, you will inflict damage. So let's just say North Korea does shoot one and it, and it goes into Japan, but you dam- you kill... 10,000 people, you damage a city, but it doesn't just end there, does it? No. And and if I, I, my guess is that uh, North Korea wouldn't want to do that because of the <laughs> risk of, of retaliation from others. Mm. So, you know, you, we're in a, this weird situation that we've, we spend a lot of money developing a weapon system that, at the back of our minds, we're hoping we never have to use. 
You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about a breakthrough this week. It's pretty big um, in the disarmament, nuclear disarmament around the world, headed up by an Australian organisation. And this is pretty unheard of since, you know, Hiroshima and all those big Mm. nuclear episodes of the 1940s in which ever since people have been in this race against time to, to build up arms. Well, certain nations have been. Um, and we, well, we never have in Australia, have we, Keith? No, we at one point were thinking about it in the late 1960s. This is where I go back to that um, earlier treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, that the Australian government, uh, the Conservative government, Liberal government, at that time were thinking of uh, using Jervis Bay, which is technically New South Wales, but it's actually, for legal purposes, part of the Australian Capital Territory. And they were developing we think, some sort of nuclear facility down there. And the Prime Minister of the day, John Gordon, was talked into signing this nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which Whitlam in due course certainly made sure that we ratified. So we, we were on that list of, of suspect countries. You go back to the 1960s and the speeches were being made, obviously by youngsters like myself, but you've also had people like the late Leonard Beaton um, identifying these 20 or 30 other nuclear weapon states. Now, one of the arguments that you get from people who say we should have nuclear weapons is this concept of deterrence, namely that if you have a nuclear weapon, no one's going to attack you. If you look, however, at the possession of weapons in the United States, firearms, the mere fact that you've got so many firearms, in fact, there are more firearms in the United States than there are people, that hasn't deterred people from using firearms on themselves or on others. So it's it's a faulty logic to say that deterrence works. And at some point, we're going to have an accident of some sort. You know, that the Russians who've got antiquated equipment might end up creating problems. I've noticed, uh, by the way, with the concern about President Trump and uh, his uh, acquiring COVID, etc., that there's now been an issue raised about uh, what is called the nuclear football So the nuclear football is a a black leather bag which is carried by United States Air Force military aid. Everywhere the president goes, there has to be this military aid. And in the event of there being a surprise attack, the aid opens up the case with the nuclear codes and the president then gives instructions for going ahead and launching nuclear weapons. So this, uh, I've heard this before. I wasn't sure if it was a wives' tale or not. No, no, it's there. Oh. <laughs> so if you look at photographs of the president, there is always nearby a military officer who's carrying this very big, uh, they, uh, what, um, they, I think it's called it a soccer bag or something, the football, because I guess probably in the United States where that's where you carry around your footballs with you, I don't know, but it is a black leather bag chained to the wrist of uh, a U.S. Air Force officer. And now, uh, the late Roger Fisher at Harvard argued that um, what they ought to do is not to have the detonation switch in the bag, but to have it in the chest of a US officer. And so a president who wanted to destroy the world would first have to get a knife and stab into the chest of this military officer uh, to bring home to the president what he was about to do. Uh, that was an idea from Roger Fisher, who's an expert on conflict resolution, a great idea. But people, they didn't appeal to people. Now, the whole concept of giving the president 
this unilateral nuclear authority. Remember, he uses the nuclear weapons. It doesn't go to mm. Congress, doesn't require the advice and consent of the Senate. And that was based on the false assumption that the Soviet Union would have launched a surprise first strike. In fact, the Soviet Union never seriously considered a first strike against the United States because uh, it'll be national suicide. Uh, once the Russians attacked the United States, the, the Americans would retaliate. That's what mutual assured destruction is all about. I've, I've got to say, there, the Pentagon has got a bit of a macabre sense of humour. That was called MAD, mutual assured destruction. The worry Everyone we've got, kills each other. <laughs> they both do. They kill each other. Yeah. yeah. We're now moving across to nuts. So we've gone from mad <laughs> to nuts. Nuts represent nuclear use and tactics. In other words, you've got some people who are saying, let's deal with this problem of the massive destruction of nuclear bombs. Let's just make smaller bombs. So instead of destroying an entire city, we can just knock out the centre of it, etc. So we're moving from this idea of mutual assured destruction to some sort of what's called a surgical strike and nuclear use and tactics. This is the whole issue of what is called the first strike. You want to get in there quickly. You want to destroy the other side. That was a very foolish idea. It gave rise to the previous peace movement of the late 1970s. They were using um, intermediate nuclear force missiles. They were, the intention at that time in the late 1980s is that they would have a war in Europe, which would destroy most of Europe, and about a third of the United States would go. And all government departments were asked, how would you cope with working if you lose a third of the United States? And, a, and the um, US Postal Service said, don't worry, we will still find a way of delivering letters. <laughs> this is the lunacy of that Reagan era. Then, of course, you do get a breakthrough with the United States and the then Soviet Union agreeing to get rid of these particular type of weapons. But the bigger one still remains in existence. It fell off the public horizon. People moved into other issues. And so tragically, we lost that incentive to push for full nuclear disarmament. That's why this international campaign against nuclear weapons has been so important. It's put nuclear weapons back on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And what is particularly, uh, uh, particularly pleasant is that we now have that treaty. And what we need to do in Australia is to make sure that Australia signs on to that treaty. And hope that everyone is willing to get rid as well, not build more, but also get rid of their arsenal at some point. Absolutely. Keith, enlightening as always. Thank you. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.